Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Hey kids, comics! And here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello everybody. Hello everyone. And welcome back to the show I tortured. Young Michael, through five weeks of 1980s comics, it wasn't as bad as all that, was it? It, it wasn't. Really? It wasn't as much of a laugh as the 90s. Uh, no, it, it, they were good comics, weren't they, for the yeah. most part. Yeah, yeah. So, whereas the 90s was uneven, <laughs> is probably the most polite way of saying yeah. it. But to apologise, or make it up to him, I have let you have the con... For three whole weeks. I love how you say, let me, as though you were opposed to covering <laughs> what, what we're doing. No, I wasn't opposed to it, by any means at all. No, I thought it would be uh, quite a fun experience to mm-hmm. cover what we're covering. But we'll not talk about that yet, even though there'll be a picture accompanying the show. Probably. That ruin everything. Yes. But we won't talk Unless about that. cover it up with, say, a green <laughs> question mark. Oh, riddle me this, Batman. Mm-hmm. Mm. Four people in a boat with a cigarette and no matches. How do they smoke? Throw a man overboard. And make the boat a cigarette lighter. That's a Riddler <laughs> gag. That's a genuine <laughs> Riddler gag, isn't it? From um, the 60s Batman show. All right. That's cool. Uh, you know what I think? Yeah. I thought it was cool. I like that your mum joined in. Oh, that was fun. Anyway, yeah, hello, everybody. We've already said that, haven't we? I think we might. We're so professional on this show. So, we shall just jump straight into Robert Ludwig's email. Velvet versus Marvel versus DC. I think Velvet Templeton would kick some ass. Would you? I think so. Superman's got no match. Not for Velvet Templeton, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, maybe that that particular confrontation would not go down in Velvet's favour. Maybe not. But her and Black Widow, that'd be one for the ages, wouldn't it? Could be. That'd be quite interesting. So o- only the non-superpowered. Yeah, putting her up against the Hulk wouldn't be fair. Yeah, I don't think. Driving away in a flying car. Yeah. Does she have a flying car? She should. You think? <laughs> <laughs> if she does, get dear Ed Brubaker. Yeah. Get right on that. <laughs> <laughs> Robert Ludwig's emailed in. Howdy, Leylands. Or maybe I should just put it, damn you, Leylands. After listening to your episode on Velvet, I was intrigued. I never would have given this comic a second glance if you hadn't done such a great job at describing it. I will admit to loving James Bond, Timothy Dalton being my favourite, followed closely by Roger Moore. So your description of the comic being similar to James Bond made me want to check this out. So last weekend, right after the Velvet episode was released, I went to my local comic shop. It was time for me to go and get my monthly file anyway. Since I was there, I went and bought the trade. You made me spend money! I will say that it was very enjoyable, and at times I could see where James Bondish ideas were. Still, it was money well spent. Good. Well, we're glad that we didn't make you spend money on something you thought was tripe. Yeah. That would have been unfortunate. It would have. And partially our fault. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, let the buyer be were. 
and all that gubbins. But we're glad you enjoyed it, Robert, because I, I, I'm a big fan of Velvet. I think it's a great series. In reading the book, Robert continues, I kept in mind how you had described the last chapter. While I agree that having this final chapter of the trade being a flashback and not fully progressing the story was kind of a disappointment, I did enjoy how the flashback was tied into the non-flashback parts of the story. It makes me want to get the rest, but I will probably wait for the trade since it should be a little cheaper that way. It should, because isn't Velvet being released in um, images really cheap? Trades, oh, yeah. like $10 for five issues or something. Like what they did with Saga. Yeah. And then they released the really cool and expensive hardback. Yeah, but that's fair enough. The whole idea of the really cheap trades is to get people to read it who've never read it. Yeah. You know, if you've been reading comics for any length of time at this point, you know there is going to be a big deluxe version of whatever it is you like at some point. Yeah. So it's up to you as a buyer whether you wait for that big deluxe version or you buy the, the regular version. Same yeah. with hardback and paperback, isn't it? Unless, of course, they release Death of the Family with a cool mask there is after that. you've bought Death of the Family. Yeah. That could annoy somebody. It could. But, you know, not us. It doesn't annoy us. Does it not? No, because we don't have the trades. I've considered buying the trade just because all the comics are yours. When yes. you leave, you will take your Batman comics with you and I will be bereft I, I will. of Snyder Capullo goodness. But I'll take the comics with me mm. and I'll take the unwrapped Court of Owls with me. And I'll, I'll take... Yeah, but we don't have them. We will. Well, yeah, but they'll be yours, not mine. Exactly. So that's fine. And I'm th- buying the trades for me, dude. And I'll take the trade with the uh, the Court of Owls mask. No, that would be mine. No, I want the mask. No, 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 no. no you no. can have the Joker face. I've considered buying that just to get Scott Snyder to sign the mask. The owl? Yeah. Oh, okay. But I've, I've thought lots of people have probably done that. I, I'm on the mask. I'm on the mask. I want it, Dad. You have the Joker face. <laughs> You will see my joker face. Then other words. I don't think so. Could he not do a parody of that song called Joker Face? Could, could do. See me now, there see me now without my joker face. It could totally work. I'll wait. I'll yank a bit. And get on that. I ripped it off for shits and giggles. <laughs> you can't say that. <laughs> Anyway, back to Robert's email <laughs> we've interrupted. Now, Marvel vs. DC, he says, I remember this fondly. Yeah, I remembered it fondly. When you had stated that you were going to review this, I was excited. I always love it when people say we review stuff. Do you think what we do is reviewing stuff? I don't... It could be. It could be considered Arguably. that in the internet world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always think that a review should be insightful, insightful and... Critically, eval- critically evaluating the the core themes and concepts. We do sometimes of the issue. Yeah, yeah, I think that what we do basically just read a comment and then either say we like that or tell over it. I think you critically evaluated the bulleteer. That's very true. That, that was inadvertent. It was. <laughs> that was inadvertent intelligence. So we, we inadvertently <laughs> review comics. We inadvertently sometimes say something insightful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But for the most part, it's just dick and fart gags. Yeah. <laughs> and that's Dick Grayson gags. Of course, Not yeah. actually swearing. Yeah. And fart being father gags. See? How See? is fart swearing? Farter? Farter? See? Like that. 
Right. Okay. I don't get how far to swear. It isn't, but I, I couldn't right, think okay. of anything else that, that goes. Anyway, we appreciate Robert saying that we review things. I don't know if it's true. Robert continues. I'd hoped to pull out my copies and reread before listening to the show, but alas, this was not meant to be. Between work, a wife, and a seven-year-old, I can't always do what I want. You know, tell me about it. Anyway, I just listened to the show today at work and in the car. I remembered some of the fights, Lobo vs. Wolverine, Superman vs. Hulk, Spider-Man, Ben Riley vs. Spider-Boy, and Cap vs. Batman. I remember watching the scorecard of which side won the most, knowing in the end that somehow it would be a tie. Still, I was rooting for Captain America to beat Batman, but not quite knowing how. As for Spider-Man, I remembered it was Ben, not Peter. He had the brown hair and hit on Lois. I just really started collecting comics, Spider-Man, about a year before, and was really enjoying the Clone Saga. Yes, I'm one of those guys. Granted, I haven't read these issues for at least 15 years, but for some reason I thought this was set before Ben dyed his hair, so it never bothered me that he had brown hair. I did forget the line about his name, though. Thank you for giving me so enjoyable listening these last few months. I will continue to listen for as long as you put out the show. Oh, and Michael Flying Showbeat's been able to talk to Sea Life any day. Namor should have won easily. Have a great one, Robert Ludwig. I like Robert because he agrees with me. <laughs> Which is the criteria, is it, yeah. I believe, for me liking something. <laughs> that's, that's how it works. Thank you, Robert. We, we greatly appreciated that email. That was fun. And we went on a lot of tangents, so we do apologise. Mm-hmm. James Hickson has also emailed in about Marvel vs. DC. First off, let me congratulate you both on another entertaining episode. I will miss the show when Michael abandons his family to his Institute of Higher Learning. Still, if he insists, can't you press another member of the family into podcasting servitude? If you can't get any of the immediate family to participate, what about some of the illegitimate ones that sent from my iPad? What? Oh, right. That confused me. <laughs> I apologise for that, James. For some reason, your sentence is interrupted by send from my iPad. I thought you were just being all surreal for a minute. <laughs> I thought he was coming over all uh, Grant Morrison on us. Yeah. And suddenly we'd entered a parallel universe. Illegitimate iPad children. <laughs> the iPad has had illegitimate children. Yeah, yeah. Does Apple know about this? You plug yourself in via USB. Do you fail completely to find iTunes? <laughs> No, I, iTunes just can't sink. <laughs> the whole thing is a shambles. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Uh, as to the question, no, we will not press gang anyone else. The show is me and Michael. And I think you bring an awful lot more to it than people perhaps give you credit for. Do I? Yes, I think you do, okay. in all honesty. So when he goes, the show ends. Because that's what it is. This isn't. This isn't. You know, one of those bands where we just plug somebody else in <laughs> and hope nobody notices. Yeah, like you know, Guns and Roses. Axl Rose is large enough to block the other members <laughs> on stage. Axl Rose is now so big that if you walk around him, you go into orbits. And that's just his head. <laughs> so no, we are not one of those bands. When when one member of the band leaves, the band ends. The Beatles didn't carry on without John Lennon, did they? No, they just all had. Solo careers. Yes, yeah, so that's what we would do. We would have solo careers. You've already started. I've yours. already started my <laughs> solo career, <laughs> and I do a lot of work with other bands. You, you do, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's that's actually that works out, doesn't it? Yeah, me and Stephen are a band. <laughs> me and Mike Bailey are a band. Me and Sean and Paul are a band. Are we like Buffalo Springfield or Crosby, yeah. Stills, Nash and Young? Yeah. All the Travelling Wilburys. <laughs> oh, no, that's been brought up before as well. Excellent. Anyway, shall we carry on with James's email? 
Now, the episode itself. I first read the Marvel vs. DC crossover when I was 12 and it had come out in trade. It was one of the most hyped events of the year and I remember being very excited. I also remember being somewhat disappointed. Like you stated in the episode, the mini does very much have the feel of a 90s fighting game and a plot just as thin. The main payoff for me would have to be the Amalgam universe that came out of it. Spider-Boy was and still is my favourite of the Amalgam characters. The other standouts like Super Soldier, Iron Lantern and... Okay, I'm blanking. Spider-Bot is still awesome, though. I like the character so much that I would, years later, sketch my own version of a Spider-Boy Prime, which I will attach with the email. Hooray for visual aids on an audio medium! <laughs> and we will have a look. Oh, that's very good, that! I like that he's wearing a jacket. Yeah, that's quite 90s. Thank you. I don't mind the dimension-hopping aspect as much as you did, honestly. The 70s and 80s crossovers always bugged the crap out of me that the characters suddenly existed in the same universe without explanation, especially I was constantly explaining to people the difference between Marvel and DC characters, as 12-year-old boys and sometimes 20-year-old, 29-year-old men do. If you want to see this done right, however, I highly recommend the later JLA Avengers crossover by Kurt Busiek and George Perez. Keep up the good work, fellows. James Hickson from dominocomics.com. So I have to say dot com. You have to say dot com. Yeah. Yeah. How come you have to say dot com, but not the www? Because that's how they say Superman homepage dot com. Oh, okay. And I think that's really good. I like that. Thank you, James. And thank you for the picture. I very much enjoyed seeing that. And with regards to JLA Avengers by Kurt Busiek and George Perez, all I will say is it's in the book. Yeah. There is no guarantee that it will get covered. Yeah, yeah. But it's in the book. Seeing it's in the book is like when parents say, I'll think about it. <laughs> Which basically means not a chance. Yeah, yeah. yeah, okay. Gus Shaw's emailed in. Congratulations, Michael. Ahoy! The news this morning had a brief story about the next Captain America film covering Marvel Civil War. I remember Michael making such a prediction, most likely when you reviewed the Winter Soldier film. I think he might have predicted the plot for an Avengers title, but it's close enough for me. Good work, Michael. Ah, thank you. And that's from Gus. You did, didn't you? You did did say it's going to be Civil War. Was that common knowledge, or did that just come to you? It just came to me. See, a lot of people have, have actually said to me, what do you think about that, given my well-known hatred of Civil War as yeah. a story. And I think my hatred of Civil War is is the execution rather than the idea. Mm. By its very nature, the movie's version of Civil War cannot be the comic Civil War, can it? Spider-Man's not in it. Well, Spider-Man's not in it, so you won't have that ridiculously out-of-character moment where he takes his mask off. Although, weren't the rumours recently that Marvel and Sony are in... Sony will not let Spider-Man go. Yeah. I don't think so. Because to get Spider-Man, they had to let James Bond go, I think. Right. There was some kind of deal-making that went on that whatever rights they had to the James Bond character, they had to let go in exchange for having full rights to Spider-Man or something like that. I don't remember the full details. Somebody who's listening probably remembers. So they're not going to let that go. It's one of those things we just have to live with. They will grind Spider-Man into the ground before they let it go. Back to Marvel. I honestly think that. Much like Fox will do with X-Men and and, um, and Fantastic yeah. Four. They won't just hand it back. They mm. will grind it into the ground first. And then you're left with the thing that Marvel may get it back, but they probably won't be able to do anything with it. Even yeah. if Marvel got Fantastic Four back tomorrow, the slate is booked up through 2019 or 2017? 2020, is it? Is it 2020? So even if they got Fantastic Four back tomorrow, they couldn't do anything with it until at least 2021. Yeah. And is the stench of the Fox movies so pervading that they could even do anything with the Fantastic Four? Well, I think Marvel's track record will. 
let them do something with it. Yeah, I'm not saying they wouldn't do a great Fantastic Four movie. They probably would. Yeah. But they've also got to fight Fox's movies. And they've also got to fight The Incredibles. Yeah. Which largely did the Fantastic Four concept better than Fox did it. Yeah, yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see how they, they did that if they got it back. Anyway, thanks, Gus. And thanks for pointing out that Michael was right. I'm sure he will never let us forget that. <laughs> Gene Hendricks has emailed in on the 200th episode. God, yeah, we did a 200th episode, don't we? We did. We're like Supernatural. Only better? We've just done a 200th episode. Mm. Are we better? Than Supernatural? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I quite like it. I thought you loved Supernatural. Oh, for his first three years. Oh, you one of them. Right, okay. <laughs> I, I his old work was better. That's not even an opinion, though. Is it not? As soon as Eric Kripke left. In fact, that was after Series 5. A little before Eric, Kri- Eric Kripke left, though, it kind of turned to... Did it? From now on, though, it's all about angels and demons. Casting oh, right, so you think that, that story has played itself out a bit? Yeah. Okie dokie, Gene Hendricks has emailed in. Gents, first off, let me congratulate you on 200 episodes, which is an amazing accomplishment. Well done. Thank you, Gene. It it, uh, it, it took it out of us, I think. And he's sitting in our own house for yeah. 200 weeks. Talking bollocks. Yeah. Actually, 200 weeks does sound really, really big. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 200 weeks. I think we're entitled to a break at Christmas, quite frankly. Yeah. I've been toying with the idea of taking a week off. Yeah. Because as the schedule is currently planned, we would be releasing an episode... On Christmas Day? On either Christmas Day or Boxing Day. Thanks to that voice from the gods. <laughs> and uh, so I've decided we're going to release the Christmas show on the 22nd of December. Right. Pay attention, lovely listeners. Special <laughs> Christmas episode. And yeah, thank you, voice from the gods. <laughs> and an episode would come out on January the 1st, and I have considered having January the 1st off. But we can't have a day off. Why not? Because we've never had a week off. And that's that would mean we're entitled to one. But we have a reputation to maintain. I know, but who's going to listen to a podcast on January the 1st? Um, Everyone's too stuffed with mince pies and has a bad head. People have to work on, on January the 1st. Nobody works on January 1st, do they? Do they not? That's barbaric, dude. New Year's Day should be a day off for everybody. What about taxi drivers and bus drivers? And I think bus drivers are off. Oh, right, I okay. think because trains don't run on New Year's Day, do they? Right. You know, I don't know. I would have to give that some thought. All right, well, we'll put it to the vote, which okay. is me and Michael. <laughs> and uh, we'll see. We may not release an episode on January 1st, because like I said, nobody listens to a podcast on January 1st. But it's the... And our reputation is maintained. <sighs> All right, There's okay. We'll we'll, we'll think about it. But the the Christmas episode's definitely going up early. Okay. I'm not releasing the Christmas episode on Christmas Day or Boxing Day or whatever it, it works out. It can be a Christmas present to the world. Nobody will listen to a podcast on Christmas Day. It's Christmas Day or Thursday this year. Yeah. yeah. So it would come out on Christmas Day. So no, that's coming out on the 22nd. That's coming out on Monday. Oh, okay. So we won't have missed a week. We'll have just brought it forward a bit. Right, okay. So the Christmas episode will be early. Right. Christmas episode should come out before Christmas. Okay. In my opinion. Anyway, should we carry on with Gene's email? Alright, alright. On Man of Steel, this is my favourite version of Superman right here. This is a great miniseries and I love it each time I read it. As far as Clark playing high school football, I think that Jonathan let Clark do this because he's in Kansas. Not playing football when you have a bill like Clark would have raised more questions than would have been comfortable. There's also the fact that more than likely Clark would have started playing football in Pop Warner, which is sometimes around six or seven, so he wouldn't have had the power levels he did in high school. Remember, he was completely human-like as a baby, and the powers developed very slowly over time. I'm still wondering what a hell a Pop Warner is. 
I don't know. All right, I, was, I thought you were going to hit me with the knowledge. No, no. All right, fair enough. The reason that Jonathan disapproved at the point in the story that he does isn't because Clark is playing, or even because Clark is winning, but because Clark is doing everything at the expense of the rest of the team. It is also possible that they have had a discussion or two prior to this about being careful with his growing powers, which would make this the last in a line of conversations leading Jonathan to think that showing Clark the ship is the last resort. With regard to the costume, I think you have a fatal flaw in your logic. It wouldn't be the first time. You see, in this world, superheroes did exist. The Justice Society All-Star Squadron was active in the 40s and 50s, so they did the costume design based on those heroes. That explains the cape, boots, trunks, and especially the shield. I've never liked the idea of the costume symbol coming from Krypton. Okay, I might be able to buy the costume, but just happening to have an S symbol for someone that isn't named Superman stretched credibility for me. More than Jonathan Clark coming up with it based on the JSE heroes and the name Superman. Uh, see, that, I, I do think that's a fair point. Actually, I don't. Because uh, I went in the reading Man of Steel thinking that he was Superman was the first superhero, mm. but of course the JSA did exist then. But did they? Remember, yeah. coming out of the crisis, right? We don't know when that came out what was real and what wasn't. And my understanding is the crisis messed up Roy Thomas's All-Star Squadron. Yeah, but zero hour. Yeah, but that came later. Oh, it doesn't matter. That came later. When you're reading Man of Steel as it comes out in 1986, ignoring the future, taking what you know then and there, Superman was supposed to be the first of the DC comic superheroes within the context of that miniseries. But Zero Hour was a retcon, and a retcon means yes. that what you thought when okay. you read it when it came out was wrong. Exactly. on. So what I'm saying here with what Gene is saying, yes, from what Gene is saying, when you include the Zero Hour retcon, fine. Yeah. But when you're reading Man of Steel in isolation, as it was originally published... Superman was the first. But that's the problem with retcons. So he's got it? nothing to base his costume on. But the he, retcon retcons that and makes that explanation work. But he didn't when you read it, but he did. Exactly, Mark. So In what hindsight. we can say, though, then, to keep the peace, both Gene and I are correct. <laughs> You're only correct in those few years before Zero Hour happened, though. That's a good nine years. Yeah, okay. <laughs> or is it seven years? Zero Hour 94? I'm not sure. Which would be eight years. Yeah, it was, in, it was during... So for the better part of a decade, I was right. For okay. the better part of 20 years, <laughs> Gene was right. But either way, yeah. what I'm going to say is, all right, we, we have a slight disagreement. Yes, Michael thinks that you have a valid point. Mm-hmm. I think that you only have a valid point when you take into consideration retcons and such. When Man of Steel was presented, were we not, were we not being told Superman was the first? in this new post-Crisis on Infinite Earths universe. I could be wrong, but that's certainly my memory of what Man of Steel was was supposed to be. Mm. Okay? Okay. Okay, okay. I'm glad we could uh, all come to an agreement on that, even with Gene not here <laughs> to voice his opinion. <laughs> he's, he's come to an agreement by default. <laughs> yes. Postal ballot. <laughs> that's what he's done. I love Burns' Batman, continues Gene, especially with the black cape and cow. I have no problem with Batman carrying the bomb around, since the force field that activates it only reacts to super-dense organic matter, which is only Superman at the moment. I do believe that he wouldn't have activated until he knew Superman was in the area, though, just in case. The magpie bit is... very thin, but it's not like they could take on either one's best villains, really. 
But wow, yeah, that really wasn't very well thought out. My question to you on issue four is, how many people do you have over to your house? If only 1% of them go through your cabinets, men or women, then the electric razor cover story makes sense. Same with the weights, assuming that Clark lets anyone at all into his apartment. Then he needs to have something in place to cover for the fact that he's Superman. But like Byrne, I came to DC from Marvel, so I think I was looking for these kinds of things. I do like the facial expressions in the issue, especially Superman explaining Clark surviving and Lex going from, and now I own him, to, they can't do this when he's arrested. I still maintain that he doesn't need an electric shaver. No, he doesn't. He doesn't need one. Because people will rarely go around his apartments, and even then... Yeah, well, even he, if they did... You're kind, of, you're kind of a bit nosy to look through people's... Yeah, but the, the flip side of that is I don't have an electric shaver. Neither do you. No. I mean, granted, I'm not trying to cover that I'm a superhero, but the point <laughs> remains, that scene only exists... Yeah. ...for him... For the sake of John Byrne. Yeah, for him to establish how Superman shaves. Yeah. So you don't get people writing and going, anything for me, Kitty's here... Don't you? That yeah. scene exists for that purpose, and that's the whole reason that he has an electric shaver. Mm. In context, it makes sense, because he's explaining how Superman can shave. But in reality, he doesn't need one. No. I don't have one. Would he not just need a, a normal razor? Yeah, it, yeah, he would have to have a razor lying around. Uh, yeah. That would make sense, just in case, you know, he ever had Cat Grant over for dinner. Right, oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah. All right, I can go, but I still think the electric razor does... Yeah. It doesn't matter. It doesn't ruin your story and it establishes why Superman shaves. And also, why would he need weights in his house? Yeah, you could just say, I go to the gym. Yeah. I don't have weights in the house, do I? No, you don't. I go to the gym, don't I? Yep. So, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Again, it's burn overthinking stuff that doesn't need overthinking. How do you have that physique? I go to the gym every night after work. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, how can I never see you at the gym? Oh, darn it. Oh, I go at 6am. <laughs> Which you do. Morning. Well, I do, but I'm not <laughs> Superman, so... Should we carry on with the email? Yeah, the fifth issue is a bit of a throwaway, continues Gene, but at least it touches on the original Bizarro story. It's pretty much a let's-get-this-out-of-the-way kind of thing. I would like to think, where the costume is concerned, that Clark keeps it hidden in a panel in the storeroom, and he stopped there and grabbed it on the way downstairs. Yeah, but that's not in the story, though, is it? He overthinks everything else. Yeah. But the logical thing that works, (laughs) the shirt rip, he gets rid of that. Anyway. Gene concludes, the one thing I think you're missing on the final issue is this wasn't the ghost of Jor-El, but a hologram. I don't think we... Did we miss that? I don't know. I don't remember. It, we must have thought it was some spectral image of some kind, yeah. but I don't think... We, did we think it was a ghost? We may have done, I don't know. I'll, I'll give you that one. The reason it came around 28 years later... Is that the sequel? <laughs> to 28 Days Later. I attribute to two things. The first is that the kryptonite damaged the rocket in some way and its program wasn't triggered properly. The second reason is that the rocket had been moved, probably triggering the program, which had the hologram seek out the only Kryptonian on the planet. Gene, had that been in the issue... <laughs> I'd have agreed with you. Yeah, it, it did just seem like a throwaway. Yeah, it just randomly appeared because, oh, yeah. it's issue six, <laughs> and we need to explain Krypton. It's a very good explanation that yeah. Gene has come up with. It's a very good no prize, but it's not in the comic. But it's a no prize from Gene and not John Byrne. That's very true. I love the last splash, though. Clark knows all about Krypton from the download of information and doesn't care. He's like an adopted child who finds out about his natural parents and would rather ignore that and spend his time with the family that raised him. Him being a Kryptonian on Earth made him Superman, but his mental processes of being on Earth and raised by the Kents makes him human. 
Wow, that was long-winded. Gene, um, it wasn't long-winded with us interrupting it. It was even longer. <laughs> yeah, it was even more long-winded <laughs> yeah. with our interjections. <laughs> I see, I don't have a problem per se with him going, yeah, my real parents gave me away and I'm not really interested in knowing them. These are my adopted parents. But it's a slightly different thing. Yeah. You're talking about an entire culture. It wasn't exactly giving them away. It was saving him. Yeah, from... they didn't give him up for adoption because they didn't want him. Yeah. They gave him up to save his life. Surely that would count for something with Superman. Yeah. And it would have him go down the road less travelled. What would I have been like if Lara and Jarrell had raised me? Yeah. And he would come to the conclusion, no, Jonathan and Martha have made me who I am. Yeah. And that's that's fine, I can live with that. But to completely dismiss the concept of Krypton as, ah, doesn't matter. I felt was too far the other way from where the Silver Age was. But this is coming from someone who said Krypton's only there to blow up. Yeah, I think Krypton is there only to blow up. But the fact that in a story where Krypton is there only to blow up, you have a problem with it. No, I don't. See, the difference is, right, right. Krypton is there to explode to give us Superman. Okay. I would not be asked if every single future iteration of the Superman story begins, boom, Krypton blows up. Okay. But once Superman finds out about his Kryptonian heritage, he should, to me at least, be interested in that heritage. What were the Kryptonian people like? Not specifically Jor-El and Lara. Yeah. What were my people like? Where did they come from? What were the hopes and beliefs and fears? All of that stuff. Yeah. And I'm not saying he would become obsessed with it, but like it he did be... in the Silver Age, but it would be something that he would think about and give some consideration to. Yeah. The John Byrne version of Superman just tossed Krypton out the window as if it didn't matter. Mm. So that's what you're saying there is two completely different things. I'm not interested in a film that is set on Krypton before Krypton blows up. Okay. I don't mind that as backup stories, like five or six page backup stories in a Superman comic, yeah. like we used to get. I don't even mind it as, as its own mini-series. Mm. But I'm not interested in a film or continuous TV show, God forbid they should do it, <laughs> called Krypton, right. for example. Okay. I don't care. Krypton is there to give us Superman. Yeah. But from a character point of view, why would he just completely turn his back on that culture just because they got rid of him as a kid? Yeah. It didn't make sense to me. It's this, The adoptive anal- analogy only goes so far. It'd be... It's essentially what we're saying, though. The analogy we're playing with is his parents died and he was adopted. Yeah. That is different from his parents gave him away because they didn't want him. Mm. And I think in that situation, certainly speaking for me, I would want to know about the parents that died. Just as much as much as I appreciate and love the parents that raised me, and I would never think any different of them, I would still have an interest in the place where I came from. Yeah. Do you get me? Yeah. Right. Okay. Did I explain that well? Yeah. All right. Okay. Should we move on? Because okay. you look like you're bored no, no, no. of that conversation. I'm just thinking of... Um would a TV show called Candor be any good? Oh, hey, Luke. What's going on in the fortress today? <laughs> hey, look. Superman's playing with crypto. <laughs> that could be an episode. <laughs> <laughs> but you never see it from the fortress. You always see it from Candor's perspective. It's one of the Candor TV series. You would at least have the possibility of having Superman in it. Yeah. Whereas with the Krypton TV series, what would that be like? Don't know. Hey, look! And today, today we invented the Phantom Zone. Uh, and today, I'm I'm six weeks pregnant. Oh yeah! 
And so the series would end after ten years the, with Krypton blowing yeah, up. Yeah, the, the, the... I can't think of anything worse. The baby shower of the House of L. Oh, I can't think of anything more boring than a Krypton prequel. I don't know, a, a Gotham prequel's kind of dull. <laughs> Is that what you think? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Gene hosts the Hammer Strikes podcast on 2TrueFreaks.com, the Quantum Cast on 2TrueFreaks.com, and Anime Freaks also on 2TrueFreaks.com. Verily, we have cornered the market on superior podcastery. Mm-hmm. That's what I think, anyway. Anyway, I think we've done enough, though, don't you? Mostly us talking, yeah. Yeah, we've gone over the regular 30 minutes that we allocate to emails, so we're going to have to move on. So everyone else who emailed in about various different stuff, we will get to you next time. We're going to take a break and plug a show, and we'll see you after the break. Why do you think superheroes are so important? People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. Man of Tomorrow, with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other, the caped crusader, carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile. Let's go. Up. Up. And away. Atomic battery is Turbines to speed. Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman featuring your two favorite heroes and one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com. September 2011 saw DC Comics reboot their entire line of comics and start afresh with new number ones and new backgrounds behind their well-established characters. Action Comics started with Grant Morrison and Rags Morales' Golden Age-inspired origin to the modern-day Man of Tomorrow, and Jeff Johns and Jim Lee created the Justice League's new origin, both of which used the newly established five-year timeline to show the new origins as past events, and established them as current characters in a current setting. Certain characters had no new origins, with their titles starting in the present day or continuing from their previous pre-Flashpoint storyline or origin. Batman, however, was halfway through Morrison's Bat-epic finale, Batman Incorporated, and had no new origin. And the only thing we readers knew about his past was that a lot of pre-Flashpoint things happened, and a lot didn't, and all of it happened in five years. Then came September 2012, or DC's Zero Month, which brought a zero-numbered issue for every title, which promised us an origin. DC smartly used the five central Bat books to tell us a multi-part story, with each book telling a story from certain points in Bruce Wayne's training. 
For more on this, listen to our episode in which we covered these four issues. Well done. Yes. Uh, what these issues didn't give us, however, was an actual Batman origin, telling us only that Batman's been active for six years rather than five. And with Batman only appearing in Batman and Robin and Batman Incorporated, which was set alongside the beginning of Morrison's Batman run. What we didn't know was that Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo must have had something in mind regarding an origin, as their Zero issue would plant the seeds for a story called Zero Year. And after setting up the story in a few issues after the death of the family arc wrapped up, Zero Year started in Batman issue 21. Which we have here. Yes, we do! The real comic! Uh, the cover of this uh, was used for advertising a lot and uses a blue background with a stylized black and yellow bat taking up the bottom third of the page. Uh, this would also be the same format to all the three issues that started their respective acts, all with different colours. Uh, the bat would also run across the top of every Zero Year issue and tie in. It's rather uninspiring. Yeah. It doesn't instill you with confidence that this is going to be a good comic, because it's a rather boring cover. It's all very stylized and fancy, though. Yeah, I mean, the bat is embossed, if you run your hands over it. If you want a strokey comic. Yeah, so you can feel the embossed bat, and the zero year is embossed. But the Batman logo, oddly, isn't. Mm. Which it is on later ones, isn't it? Yeah. But it's not on this one. Uh, I think it's rather dull. I'm sure Greg Capullo could have come up with something better than that. Was it even Greg Capullo? I have no idea. Does it not credit? Because they credit the cover artists nowadays, don't they? Yeah. So surely the cover artist... Variant cover, Jock. That's only the variant cover. Capullo and Placencia cover. How long do you think that took him to draw? 20 minutes. <laughs> really? Yeah. What did he do? Draw a line and then put his feet up for 15 <laughs> minutes, then draw the rest of it. He was he was working out. He's mighty fond of his Is working he? out. Yeah. Like, actually, he spent 20 minutes on Twitter tweeting about coffee. And then did that for yeah. a second. Yeah. Yeah. Rather uninspiring, to be honest with you, but whatever. I, I quite like it, but yeah. it, it is boring, I guess. Yes. Yeah. The first act was Secret City, and part one, as with every other part, was written <laughs> by Scott Snyder, penciled by Greg Capullo, and inked by Danny Meeky, and goes thusly. Six years ago, the Red Hood Gang, a new gang made up entirely of unknown men, strong-armed or blackmailed inhabitants of Gotham, known only as the numbers given to them by the leader, Red Hood One, have started to make a name for themselves. Bruce Wayne, having just returned to Gotham but still believed to be dead, has taken upon himself to stop the gang. Weeks into his attempts and he finds himself sat inside a truck on a rooftop car park, his full face disguise ripped around the mouth and six hostages tied up in the back. Between him and the exit is a group of red hoods and the leader himself. Before the gang can open fire, Bruce accelerates towards them and fires the grappling cannon, still in development, through the window and at a crane opposite them before crashing through the wall. Bruce climbs out of the truck as it swings over the sea and, at the apex, blows the doors as the cable snaps, sending all the men falling to safety. Later, in the new bat nest located on Crime Alley, Bruce explains to Alfred that the Red Hood Gang is one man who has turned Gotham and its inhabitants into the Red Hood Gang, and that nobody can stand up to it. Alfred asks Bruce when he's planning to announce his return, but Bruce, too concerned with his war, states that he has no plans on bringing Bruce Wayne back from the dead, 
That is, until, on the way out, he bumps into his uncle, Philip Kane. Phil drives Bruce to Wayne Enterprises' newly refurbished central building and explains to Bruce all the things Phil's done for the business since the death of Bruce's parents, merging with Kane Chemical and researching tissue growth and sonic deterrence. What Phil wants, however, is for Bruce to take his rightful place as the head of his family's company. Bruce refuses. He didn't return to Gotham because of the business and wants nothing to do with it. In fact, he wants nothing to do with Bruce Wayne. That night, on the top floors of Wayne Enterprises, Phil discusses Bruce and the problems his return could bring to the company with his strategist, Edward Nigma. Nigma has a simple solution for Phil, and all he has to do is kill his nephew. Um, one of the things you wisely yeah. skipped off your uh, synopsis is that this begins in the present. Yeah. As in the present day that we only will see at the end of the first eight issues? It's This opening bit is set around the last act. Yeah, so it's in the, the, the final act of the story, isn't it? Yeah, because the boy who rescues is the boy who rescues him after the explosion at the end of the second act. Yeah. So if we presume that this opening is the present... This entire story is a flashback that has flashbacks in it. But this bit here, which we're assuming is in the present, is a flashback itself. I thought this was the present... Well, yeah, yeah you're right, yeah, because yeah. it's six years ago from where we are now. Yeah. But in the terms of this story, this is the present day. Because we don't see any forward bits other than this bit, do we? At the end, yeah. Do we? Yeah, this is set around the first two issues of the final act. Right. No, so that's what I mean. There's so, a bit more after this. Well, there's yeah. no future bit where he's already properly Batman and he has Robin with him and, and stuff like no, that. No, no, no. Right. Okay. That's all I'm trying to establish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Essentially, this is set in three different time zones within the same issue. Yeah. 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 Okay. Good, 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 good. That's all I'm establishing. I love this. I love the opening. I thought the opening was effortlessly cool. Mm. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I, it feels like the cold open to a television show. Yeah. So we're going to get Batman in straight away because we're not going to see him for a bit because essentially it's an origin. A kid fishing who's then attacked and saved. But there are there's quite a lot of intriguing elements here. Why was Gotham a wilderness six years ago? Mm. Who flooded the subways? Who is the mysterious he who is referred to having killed Gotham. Why is Batman, who looks magnificent, yeah. astride a, a motorcycle, believed to be dead? An intriguing opening. It asks questions visually through Capullo's magnificent art and narratively through Snyder's writing. Because you read that opening and you go, what's going on? Yeah. It's really, it's an excellent opening. And you don't get any explanation about it through the rest of the issue. No. It is one of those that it's playing the long game, isn't it? Yeah. And it does it very, very well. Also, the title pages yeah. throughout the entire story yeah, all have three uh, widescreen panels that mean nothing until later on. Yeah, well, the first one's the rope falling into the back cave. Which represents the first act, Secret Sitter. Right. The second one is Bone Tissue. Oh, right, yeah, Dr. Death. represents the Dr. second Death, act, yeah. yeah. And then the third one is a tiger in a 
bushes, yeah, which represents Savage City, the final part. Right, see, I've not got to part for six, seven, and eight. Yeah, yeah, is it twelve. Uh, through know. 12 isn't it? Yeah. I've read the first two acts in preparation for this I've not read the finale yet time got the better of me mm-hmm. it has to be said I think it looks pretty cool with the, with um, short sleeves as well yeah although I miss the cape yeah the cape always looks cool on a motorbike doesn't it but he's, he's Gorilla Warfare Batman is he Gorilla Warfare Batman is that yes. the action figure's name <laughs> yeah. Gorilla Warfare Batman it, it would be a cool one <laughs> it would actually especially if he came with a bike yeah yeah that would be an awesome action figure. You would totally have that, wouldn't you? Uh, I would, yeah. If it was designed by Greg Capullo. I, I do like, um, in the past flashback, where he's with the Red Hoods, I do like those cowboy boots. Yes. I like them as well. They're pretty cool. The Red Hood subplot was introduced in the Zero issue. Michael mentioned we've already covered that. Go back and listen to it. Any trade paperback version of this story, I think it would be nice to include the Zero issue. Yeah. I have no idea if it is in the trade. It's not necessary. Because Snyder, via deft use of exposition, brings us up to speed with the gang of criminals and, and what's going on. They're led by an unknown yet eloquent man who is blackmailing normal, albeit well-off, citizens into committing crimes. Plot-wise, there's some setup that Bruce has been declared legally dead, and Bruce has no intention of changing that, but it's the dialogue between Bruce and Alfred that I thought was really good. But this, this opening sequence was really excellent. Yeah. It was really, really good. And I love the, the dialogue, like I said, between Bruce and Alfred is brilliant. He's got the grapple cannon. So he guns the van that has the people in the back that he's rescuing. And Alfred's, you can't be serious, the tensile strength of the grappling cannon is, it'll hold. Forgive me, sir, you're not counting the weight of the six men in the back of the truck. They're underfed. Yeah. It's brilliant stuff. And he shoots the grapple through the window and swings the truck from a crane and then it falls into the sea where everyone gets rescued. Yeah. So it's a brilliantly cool opening. Yeah, it's very Bondian, mm. but it shows that what will be a recurring thing throughout the first act. Yeah, Bruce doesn't really have a clue what he's doing yet. No, the the whole Batman image hasn't come to him yet, and once that comes to him, that's when he he figures it all out. Well, they do this three, four times. Yeah, where even including the Zero issue, where it puts him in the middle of infiltrating or trying to stop the Red Hood gang and every time he fails. Because he's not Batman yet. Yeah. And he's not figured it all out yet. I like that. Yeah. I thought that was quite cool. The splash page as well that says what do you love about this city, Bruce? Oh, yeah. I think that's a really neat little thing where every panel is Bruce Wayne as a kid in different places of the city. Is it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, so it is. I did not notice that. Yeah, Bruce Wayne on a bus, Bruce Wayne buying fish in the in Chinatown by the looks of things, Bruce Wayne catching a train, and Bruce Wayne goofing about on a, on the, the bridge that Gwen Stacy was thrown off. Yeah. By all accounts. It's oh. kind of cool as well, because that's the question his dad asks him. Yeah. Because he knows he's been messing around Gotham, and this is him messing around Gotham. Yeah, getting to know the city, although the Court of Owls story showed that he didn't quite know it as well as he thought he did. Yeah. Snyder's stuff is so well thought out, isn't it? Yeah. When it's all done and dusted, do you think it will all form one long-form story? He's already written the ending. Has he? There is story in Detective Comics 27. That is is the definitive final Scott Snyder story. So that's what he's aiming to? Yeah. Right, okay. I will reread that again with that knowledge. You'll have to dig that out for me. 
Snyder nails Batman's Arrays and Dertra, which is, I do this so no one else will go through what I did. It's not about vengeance. It's about protection. Yeah. And I love that line. I think that's fine. That's why. That's the mission. But he doesn't know how to do the mission yet. No. This was great. Yeah. Are we shooting our lord? <laughs> Could be. Did we not do this the last time we covered a Snyder Coppola or Batman? I think, sorry, I think we did. Did we not gush? I think we should never touch them again just because it's dead good. Yeah, well, there's also the thing you don't want people reading it going, it's not as good as they said it was. <laughs> do you? <laughs> But that's the thing, though. It is just, it's better than we say it is. I think it is. I think I've said before. I think this will, as long as he doesn't ruin it in the final act. Yeah. I think this will go down with Engelhart and Rogers and Miller and Mazzuelli and mm. O'Neill and Adams as definitive Batman. Because the thing with this is, you can't do it any justice by talking to it. The best way to experience the run is to read it. Yeah, and immerse yourself in it. Yeah. Completely immerse yourself in this because Capullo's art's just brilliant. Mm. And the story is just so well structured. I love the the Wayne Tower building looks like Batman. Yeah. Really and it gets is. darker and darker every time you see it. Yeah. It's light and bright when you first see it. And then slowly as it progresses through the issues it gets darker and darker. Right. Which I thought was a nice touch. Bruce is getting attacked from both sides, both Alfred and his uncle Philip wanting to take control of Wayne Enterprises as a Wayne could bring the city together. Bruce resists and returns to the manor, which is now overgrown and he abandoned. Does he not? He doesn't. He just sits outside and watching it. Oh, so he does. I'm thinking of later on. Yeah. Yeah, I'm mixing up my scenes, aren't I? Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> I'm getting confused. I do also like the, the force. Oh, well, that's what I meant. He returns yeah. to the manor. He doesn't go in the manor. No. He kind of just sits outside. But the manor is overgrown and it's not... You'd think Alfred would have been looking after it, wouldn't you? He was. Why is he not there? Because Bruce kicks him out. They're living in the, the bat nest. I know they're living in the thing just off Crime Alley. Yeah. The apartment just off Crime Alley. But, yeah. Wayne Manor looks a lot bigger than it used to do. Which is nice. I, I was thinking, though, because I don't want to say it was a Morrison thing, but the structure of it looks very similar to in Batman and Robin, where they established that Wayne Manor, the entire grounds resembles a bat. Because when Bruce Wayne was hopping through time, mm. he left clues for Dick Grayson to find him. So I think when Manor's grounds looking like a bat is a little bit too far. Could be. I think that's a bit. Within, I think that's within context, it within context, it probably was. Yeah. But it was, so if you look at it from above, like an aerial photo. Right, yeah, they say... Would that not kind of give it away? No, <laughs> they do point out that the man, the grounds around it have changed, mm. so that... So the, Bruce is making it look a bat like a bat while he's jumping through time? Yeah. Well, that fits. Well, because better. time has affected it, mm. it doesn't quite look how he left it. Right. Okay. But I like a bit earlier on with this, when Phil is talking to Bruce... And he foreshadows this story and the next one where he says they're doing sonic deterrence. Yeah. Which the guns the Red Hood gang steal. Yeah. And the the tissue growth, which is the Doctor Death, the bone the Death stuff. Yeah. Doctor Death. Yeah. Oh, there's loads of little bits. Like we've got one of my favourites coming up. Not in this issue. Is the next issue? Yeah. That we'll mention when we get. Because I said to you when I was reading it. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's very good, isn't it? Someone else pointed that out recently because I only remembered it when someone tweeted him saying, "Oh, you sly dog!" Right? Because Endgame is out now. Yes, so it says. Well, that's why I noticed it. I've not seen the tweet of which you speak. I like his Robin baseball cap as well. Yeah, but is there a reason for that, or uh, is it just a nod to? He's Robin? That, it's his dad's hat. But what? Why? I don't know. Is it even Robin? Because I thought it might be, but I just assumed it was something else. It looks very much like the Robin R that uh, Tim Drake used to have. Yeah. More than the Dick Grayson one. But does that mean that Bruce calls him Robin then? Didn't Dick Grayson always name himself Robin? I think so, yeah. In the old stories. Mm. I can't remember off the top of my head. I thought Dick Grayson named himself Robin, but I could be wrong. Could just be a simple, could be a cute gag. Could be. For all we know. Um... The giant penny makes an appearance outside of Wayne Enterprises because why not? Yeah. It gives us stories to why it's in the Batcave later. Yeah. Steals it and puts it in the cave. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Very the nice. Batmobile here, not the Batmobile, but the car his dad's working on, that turns into the Batmobile. Yes. In the next act. Yeah, yeah, the flashback. That's a very important um, flashback as well. It is. Where we established that uh, Thomas Wade has a fleet of cars as well. Yeah. Bruce has got serious daddy issues. Maybe all... As we've mentioned before. Yeah. With American fiction. Maybe all these cars turn into the Batmobiles. Eventually. Yeah. Yeah. This garage must still be there somewhere and all the cars have to be there. I like the the, uh, visual mapper, the 360 degree camera. Yeah. Which only pays off a couple of issues down the line. That's why I only mention it later on. Yeah, which is good. I like that. I thought that was quite impressive. And uh, the opening action and setup makes up for the fact that this is a lot of very welcome character building. Get the action beats out of the way first. Yeah, yeah. And then concentrate on the character. Because it's really good. Bruce and Alfred, one of the best relationships in comics, is exceptionally well handled by Scott Snyder. All the relationships yeah. throughout the run have been... I particularly like Alfred. He's not just snarky butler yeah. in this. There's an element of that. Yeah. But he is very definitely Bruce's father figure. Mm. And Bruce looks up to him and respects him and doesn't treat him like crap. Yeah, which I uh, I liked a lot. How he's done the relationship between Bruce and Dick, with Bruce being that father figure. Yeah, he's doing uh, exceptionally well with this. Yeah. I really liked it. I felt it was great. Philip Kane is somehow connected to Edward Nigma, which reading it for the first time, I was quite surprised by. Because unlike you, I don't go on spoiler sites. I I don't. You don't go on spoiler sites, but somehow you keep getting spoiled. That's because DC bloody tell you what happens in the comics. Don't subscribe to their Twitter feed. No, I don't. If you pick... Right, what happened was, for the first issue of Endgame... This is a pet peeve for you, isn't it? The first issue of Endgame, I completely avoided everything to do with it Mm. until I read it. So I'm reading Justice League United. Yes. And I flick to the back, and there's a big splash page of a certain someone Mm. with a certain grin... With the big words saying, a certain somebody is back. I think you may as well just say the Joker. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Your description doesn't leave much in the way of doubt. So, I'm reading the Mystery <laughs> Justice League United, and at the back where it says what's going on in the other titles, there's a big splash page of Superman with a big smiley grin saying the Joker is back. Right. Thanks. So a Jokerized Superman? Yeah. Wasn't that the cover of a John Byrne Superman? I don't know. I think it was. D- Superman and Banana? DC, and I'll spoil in their comics, in their other comics. <laughs> it's like they don't want you to read the comics. It's like they don't want their stories to be a surprise. Exactly. Don't read DC Comics, just go on the website to see what just happened. That bugs you, that. It does, yeah. It really does annoy you, that. 
Alright, fair enough. I have nothing to say. Uh, the, the riddle is a notoriously different car- difficult character to write, so fair play to him. Yeah, yeah. For getting him so spot on and making him, elevating him really, yeah. into the pantheon of top bat villains in this story, doesn't he? Mm. Uh, according to Snyder, all the little uh, sticky notes in the office on this page here all mean something and have a meaning throughout zero year but I've no idea what any of them mean no I've not because I looked at these oh wait Tokyo Moon isn't that the song in the second act I don't remember that he saw in Japan at the bar maybe Neurosis Empowers Family Jessica yeah I've no idea and Metropolis Blooms the price of rivets is F equals GM M2 over D2 F equals Gotham don't know. And Metropolis Squared over Death Squared? Don't know. We'll have to go through and look at it again if yeah. they all mean something when we've read all 12 issues. Remember the rip fold? Yeah. They must mean something. I was When I was reading it, I was looking at those post notes thinking they mean something. Yeah. Because it's Scott Snyder, so they must mean something. I mean, if there was any villain out of pit for a Batman Begins style retelling, it wouldn't have been Edward Nigma. Mm. So fair play to for doing such a good job. The narrative, as we've said, is all over the place. Flash forwards, present day, flashbacks. Yet, all credit to Snyder and Capullo. This is never confusing mm. at all. It flows magnificently. Some things don't change, though. The pit from The Dark Knight Returns is here. Yeah. Uh, some things inviolable, I guess. Mm. Some things just can't change anymore. The pit being one of them, him falling into the, the back cave. Yeah. Has now become an established part of the mythos. One thing Snyder's set up throughout this run is the importance of Gotham, the city, to the Batman. Arguably, Batman cannot exist without Gotham. And over his other storylines, Court, Night of Owls, and Death of the Family, Snyder's built Gotham into being as much a character in the story of the Batman as Gordon, Dick Grayson, and Alfred, and anyone else, really, hasn't he? Mm-hmm. And he's done a good job with that. Yeah. But as with everybody, it holds a few secrets that even Batman doesn't know about. There is a little nice throwaway image in these last few pages though what the tree he walks past is the willow tree that his parents planted after his brother died oh right from when did when did his brother die Court of Owls see I need to read all of Snyder's run again yeah because I've only reread Death of the Family and now this mm. but I want I want it as a nice big chunky hardcover <laughs> I want all of it yeah, in one yeah. book you know it'll happen Probably. You know it will happen at some point. Totally and visually completely different to Batman Year One, which is good. Yeah. One of the problems we both had with New 52 was this idea that a successful series like Batman still didn't restart, Mm. which sent the message that DC were completely serious about this. Frank Miller's work has achieved this level of untouchable over the years and DC still didn't have the stones to undo it and more than anything else more than cancelling action comics and detective comics and starting at number one more than Dandy Dio's aggressive five year timeline stance the thing that would have convinced me more than anything else that they were serious about this would be a complete do over for Batman and if it followed the animated series paradigm so much the better Mm. Now, I can understand DC's reticence. The year one is one of the most iconic Batman stories, and one that deserves that name, iconic. Yeah. That, that word seems to get bandied around quite a lot nowadays, doesn't it, for stuff that 
isn't important. Hmm. But there are images in, in Year One and Dark Knight Returns that are iconic Batman images within the Batman mythology. So I can understand why they didn't want to do it. And Year One is, for many, the definitive Batman origin. Not me, yeah. but for many. And ever since its first publication in 1986, it has become the touchstone for Batman for every single version of the origin that's followed. That has either aped it or mimicked a scene or mirrored a scene or whatever. And readers were concerned about this because, after all, we as comics readers don't like it when our preconceived notions are challenged. Hmm. But what Snyder does here is give us a beginning that removes year one totally. A necessary and welcome move, I thought. Yeah. And this was a glorious start. It's completely different in the fact that it's bright and colourful. Yeah. Well, that's been like a hallmark of this, this Snyder Capullo run, hasn't it? The colours have been quite vibrant, it's... except when they don't need to be. Well, what I like about it is you read A Court of Owls, Night of Oz, and Death of the Family, it's all very dark. Yeah. And then this happens, and they completely, and they've even said they did it on purpose, completely rechange the colour palette right. to make it so much brighter. Right. And well, you, can, you can also tell Capullo has changed his art style as well. Oh, his art has just completely evolved as we've gone More along. noticeably in part four, hmm. which is the first time in this run that I've held this comic out and gone, wow. See, I bought it with the dialogue. Yeah. I re- I, you can read all of these aloud, and it works. Hmm. It's just magnificent. But his artwork is brilliant. His yeah. artwork is fantastic. Batman issue 22. Uh, the cover to this one and the cover to the next few issues all form a story of their own. Which I told you about. You did, yeah. I was just going to say I didn't notice that until you pointed it out to me. Yeah. When you got them down for us for reading this. Issue 22 has the Batman smelting his equipment in a similar way to a sword. You know, when they used to yeah. make, manufacture swords. In this case, Bruce is making his batarangs. Taken on their own... I wasn't terribly impressed with them, but when you put them all together, and we're not going to give away what they are yet, but when you put them all together, I actually changed my opinion and thought, actually, that's quite clever. Yeah. Isn't it? This one's the the least uh, good one. <laughs> this was the least good. Yeah. The, this one is the least effective. Yeah. Why do you think that? It's, if you look at the next two, yeah. there's something about them which are pretty cool. The, the imagery it's a bit Batman forever <laughs> pull on the gloves yeah, yeah. put on the cape <laughs> close for the ass <laughs> I guess but it's still cool where is this I, I like that cover I like that he's he's making the batarangs instead of just having Lucius Fox build them for him they're pretty big batarangs well what do you think it is then if it's not a batarang it could be a batarang it's just it looks pretty big maybe it's just artistic license I don't know. Anyway, whatever. What did you think? Yeah, well, you liked it, didn't you? Yeah. Moving on. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Red Hood gang raid Luca Falcone's blimp in flight. Falcone isn't worried knowing that he and his cousin, Carmine, have people all over the city. But it's until his men reveal themselves to be Red Hoods. Luca soon finds himself falling from the blimp without a parachute, leaving Red Hood one alone with Oswald Cobblepot. The Hoods had interrupted a weapons deal between Cobblepot and Falcone, non-lethal Wayne Tech weaponry that had been rejiggered en route, to be able to liquefy someone's insides. With Falcone gone, Cobblepot leaps for Red Hood 1, but is stunned by the electrified helmet. One realises that this now taller Cobblepot writhing on the floor is none other than his very own vigilante and offers him a place in the gang, killing a protester in order to create an opening. Bruce tries to escape, 
but his mask is ripped off, so he quickly grabs a Red Hood hostage and hides his face behind him. In one desperate move, Bruce dives to the window, slicing into Red Hood 1 with his claws as he does so. Using anti-gravity boots, Bruce walks across the bottom of the blimp and into the cargo hold, where the real Cobblepot is tied up. As the Red Hoods climb down into the hold, Bruce takes Oswald and dives out of the blimp. Later, Bruce informs Alfred that the DNA sample he took from Red Hood 1 has no matches in any database, and that he's taking over rival gangs as well as regular citizens of Gotham. The Red Hoods are, co are committing crimes, but ones with no motive or pattern over them to make the city scared of itself. Bruce believes that he's losing a war, to which Alfred agrees. Alfred says that Bruce was doomed to lose the war from the start, and that he has a problem with Bruce's cowardice. Fighting a war is a ghost in the shadows. If his parents were alive today, then they'd be ashamed. Bruce grabs Alfred by the tie. What's he done, Bruce asks? Living in a mausoleum and cleaning silver? Who's the real coward? Alfred slaps Bruce across the face, shocking the both of them. Alfred says that this was all a mistake, and he's going back to the manor and leaves. Before he steps through the doorway, he hears Bruce behind him say, Come back. Alfred turns to see that Bruce was talking to the grappling hook. With Alfred gone, Bruce calls Phil. That night, Bruce meets Phil at the Gotham Museum. Bruce tells Phil that a weapons cache of Wayne Tech's sonic weaponry was stolen by the Red Hood gang, and that they need to shut down operations to stop the gang. Phil says that stopping operations can be possible, but quickly shifts the focus onto Bruce. When Bruce still refuses to bring back Bruce Wayne, Phil turns on the museum's lights, revealing a large Welcome Home Bruce sign and a large group of reporters. Phil introduces Bruce to the reporters and tells them that Bruce Wayne has returned home to take over his family business, but Bruce quickly turns away and leaves. Whilst looking for an exit, Bruce walks past a giant replica of the Sphinx, but is greeted by a locked door. A man steps out from the shadows and tells Bruce that if he's looking for the exit, it's up ahead in the aviary, aviary wing. The man is Edward Nigma, and Bruce asks him if he's asking a riddle, as there is no aviary wing. Nigma says that he just got carried away with the spirit of the Egyptian room, and tells Bruce about a puzzle similar to the Ouroboros, a creature that has no arms similar to Bruce's uncle. Bruce impresses Nigma by working out that he's being told that Phil is selling arms to the Red Hoods, but Nigma refuses to say any more. Hearing the reporters nearby, Bruce climbs up the Sphinx. The museum has no aviary wing, and the Sphinx has no wings. So, in order to reach the exit, he, ha he has to climb up ahead and out of the skylight. Bruce takes the taxi back to the bat nest and leaves a voicemail for Alfred begging for him to pick up and that he was wrong all along. The taxi driver watches Bruce walk inside before stepping out and putting on his red helmet. Bruce has only a moment to admire the Welcome Home Bruce sign before the room is set ablaze. Big cliffhanger. Um, I, again, I thought the, the, I loved the action opening. The Red Hood stuff is funny. Yeah. In a very twisted and way. I, on purpose? Yes, on purpose, as we'll find out later. I love it when he throws, um, is it Carmine that he throws out? Luca. Luca Falcone. Falcone out the window says, Wait! You forgot your shoot! Yeah. <laughs> I did actually laugh. <laughs> I laughed out loud. The record one is very funny. He's hysterical, and I love him. Oh well, yeah. <laughs> he is. He is very, very funny. Red Hood one, and there will be a reason for that later mm. on. 
echoes of year one in the scene where Bruce disguised as Cobblepot infiltrates the Red Hood gang in addition to being a really good action scene wonderfully choreographed by Capullo that pays off a scene from last issue Bruce's electro-adhesion boots it also establishes Bruce's concern with him taking on the criminal element in a variety of Mission Impossible style face masks isn't working Mm. and he needs that psychological edge that at the moment he doesn't have does he? No. The first sign of, well, one of the first signs of him being Batman is his little gauntlet. Yeah, he has, he has little bone gauntlets, doesn't he? Yeah. In his forearms. I thought a Wolverine. Yeah. At that point. But Batman does have his blades but now. Batman does have them on his gloves, yeah. So it is, it is quite cool. Like, you're slowly seeing all the bits. Yeah. There, but they're not quite there yet. And the splash page of the blimp, because Gotham is well known for its blimps. Yes, well, Bruce gave them. Yeah. An army of blimps, didn't he? I still think, why? Why have they thought that blimps are an effective way of fighting crime? Because if the animated series taught us anything, it's that it's blimps, the blimps are cool. cool. Yeah. yeah. Alright, fair enough. But that splash page, the colour on it is so well done. Yeah, the red sky. It, well, it's purple and orange and pink. I love, and it him, works. I love him being stuck to the underside of the blimp with his boots yeah. that he was practising with last issue. Oh, that was quite neat. I like that becoming Spider-Man. Uh, the scene between Alfred and Bruce was exceptionally good. Mm. Bruce is going round and round in circles, completely missing that by working as a vigilante, apart from the system, he's removed from the system. He needs to be Bruce Wayne. Yeah. And Bruce Wayne needs to be a part of Gotham, and he's not realised that yet, has he? Mm. As soon as he realises that, he's almost the... He's almost ready to be Batman. Because he is stubborn, though, and he is, yeah. we see a disintegration of the Alfred-Bruce relationship, which is always a sad development. I always, I never like it when Bruce and Alfred fall out. Yeah, but it's so well done. Oh, yeah. And it makes the later issues so much more yeah, heartfelt. It does. It, well, it totally works. Yeah. It doesn't mean that I like it's seeing just it. That, that panel of Alfred slapping Bruce. Yeah, slapping him across the face. Is quite, quite the shocker to everyone. Yeah, and it's conveyed purely in two panels, which is a close-up of Alfred's eye and a close-up of Bruce's eye, where Bruce's eye is just wide, like, did he really just do that? Yeah. Whereas Alfred's is, I regret doing that. He already regrets doing it. He's just done it, and he wishes he could take it back. But the last three panels as well, where Alfred hears come back, Mm. and as he turns around, it's just Bruce arrogantly saying it was the hook. Bruce be the yeah, yeah. Basically. Yeah, it's a great, great scene. All the Alfred Bruce stuff mm. is absolutely fantastically realised. I really like the page at the end where Bruce and Edward Nigma have a conversation that takes the form of Uruburos. Yeah. I thought that was an absolutely magnificent example of comic book storytelling. Only comics can do this. Each block of the snake is either a panel or a line of dialogue numbered for our convenience so we don't get lost that provides some plot background via riddles and prompting this is Edward Nigma after all in addition to being a wonderful way of conveying necessary plot details without it being a boring talking heads page mm. something Capallo could probably have pulled off yeah. given how good he is it also has a great moment when after reaching the end of the tale Nigma says we're out of room 
Yeah. Like a little bit of, oh, end of the patch. Which they wouldn't be if they hadn't started in like halfway through. Yeah, no, but it, it, it's, it's brilliant mm. because you couldn't do that in a film. You couldn't do that in a book. No. You couldn't do it in a cartoon. Only a comic could do that. Yeah. And do it as well as it's done there. And I love that page. I think that page is absolutely fantastic. The use of Ouroboros is also interesting. Is Snyder saying that with the creation of Zero Year as a story, the Batman character will go in circles for eternity? Forever destined to reach an end only to return to the beginning and have his story constantly retold for a new generation? Which was what he was saying in his last story in Detective 27. Is he? Yeah. I should read that again. Essentially, that story's about how Batman will die Hmm. and another Bruce Wayne will take over and have his whole new set of Batman adventures. Right. So basically what he's saying, every generation has their own Bruce Wayne. Yeah. Fair enough. Essentially what he's saying is there will always be a vampire slayer for every generation. Oh, right. So, yeah. Okay, fair enough. Buffy the Batman. Buffy the Batman slayer. Batman the Buffy slayer. (laughs) Yeah. Whatever. Buffy and Batman would actually be a cool comic. Dark Horse made that happen. It could be. Josh Wien should write it. But in this context, Ouroboros is just, it has no arms, and his uncle Phil has it's no selling arms. arms. Because, yeah, because yeah. he's selling them. It was very good. It is. I like the Riddler's Riddles in this. They weren't ridiculously stupid. They weren't. They were actually quite, uh, seemed quite well thought out, didn't they? Mm. Uh, this was less involved than the first one, as you can tell, by that we didn't have as much to say about it. But the idea that Bruce has a mission that he doesn't know how to carry out yet is compelling as are the character relationship and although the mystery of the Red Hood is interesting you still kind of you've got that thing at the back of your head haven't you that the Red Hood was the Joker that's what they do so well about Mm. it though it's no coincidence that this came after the death of the family no oh no and the fact that what's done really well about him is dialogue yes very very similar yeah and his facial appearance as well, from what little we see of him. You only see the bottom of his chin, do It's his nose. Is it? You see. Where do you see his nose? In the last issue, I think. Alright, oh, we've not got that yet. There are a few panels that, from what very little you see of him, there's a lot of the Joker in him. Hmm. And that's very well done on Capullo's part, where he makes him look just like the Joker without showing anything of him. Right. Mostly because of the nose. But yeah, the nose is a giveaway, isn't it? it yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking of that scene from Rock Sound. <laughs> uh, Batman twenty three, perhaps as a homage to Dark Knight Strikes Back, we see Batman pulling on his gauntlet before a full moon. Mm. Strikingly simple, yet quite impressive. It is, and it's just a cover of a hand in yeah. front of the moon. I should find that boring. Yeah, I've found better covers than that boring. That's probably my favourite of the four. Really? Yeah. Why? It's just really cool. Probably because of the moon. Yeah, the moon's brilliant. Has he drawn that or is it a photo? It looks like a colourist job. Right, okay. It's very good though. Yeah. Very, uh, very, really rather excellent. We like it a lot. Mm -hmm. Bruce quickly grabs a shield from a body of armour to absorb the impact of the explosion but is sent flying backwards. Struggling to get up off the floor, Bruce is helped up by Red Hood 1 but spits in his helmet. The Red Hood gang take it in turns to beat Bruce to a bloody pulp on the floor. Taking down a portrait of Bruce's parents, Red Hood 1 talks to Bruce about the impact his parents' death had on his own life. He saw the fear that came of it, the fear of the nothingness, the randomness. It was when he learned of their deaths 
and that he came up with the idea behind the gang. Hoping that the murder will inspire someone else, Red Hood One shoots through the portrait twice, one in each parent, and leaves. Bruce struggles to crawl along the floor and into the bat nest through a hidden door. He uses the sewers to escape and, having reached Wayne Manor, smashes the lock on the gate. Having returned home, Bruce collapses. Philip Kane knows Edward Nigma sent the Red Hoods after Bruce and tells him so at gunpoint. Nigma says it was unnecessary as Bruce would have come for the company and taken it from Phil. He did Kane a favour. Nigma also says that Phil won't kill him. If a man with his background was found dead on the floor outside of Wayne Enterprises, then the police will ask questions. And can Phil destroy all the computers in the building before the police arrive? Phil says he won't have to. Nigma only ever worked on a closed loop inside the server, and all he would have to do is use a large magnet to wipe the records of him from the room, something he can do with the large AC magnet beneath the floor. Staring right down the barrel of Phil's gun, Nigma only has one thing left to say. Kane. Suddenly the magnet activates and pulls Phil to the floor. If he'd have had the plate in his skull installed a year later, then it would have been non-magnetic. But, with Phil's head stuck to the floor, Nigma resigns and leaves. Bruce wakes up to a needle. He's lying on the table in the manor, covered in bruises and held together, literally, by a thread. He looks down to see poor stitching work as Alfred stands over him, apologising for being rusty. Alfred sits next to Bruce. He says that the night Bruce's parents were killed, Alfred was told that, due to the severity of the root wounds, they could have been shot in the hospital and still have died. On the battlefield, he was able to help soldiers who everyone believed was done for. He turns to Bruce and says that, whilst they might disagree, he promises to always be there to patch him back up again. Bruce stands up and walks through the manor. He finds a box full of old photos and a ball. Years ago, when Bruce was a boy, his father designed a 360 degree camera in a ball that could be used at the site of a disaster. Wanting to test it out, Bruce tied it to a string and threw it down a hole in the manor grounds but fell in, awakening a large group of bats that flew at Bruce. After being rescued and patched up by his father, Bruce never thought of that ball again, until now. He walks into a room that houses a bust of his father and breaks down, saying that he's failing his foolishly fought war and begs for a sign. Accidentally pressing a button on the ball, the room is illuminated by a 3D map of the caves Bruce photographed those many years ago and stands, embracing the bats that fly at him rather than run away like he did as a child. Taking a seat, Bruce stirs at a bat that's perched on the head of the bust and accepts the sign. Yes, father, he says. I shall become a bat. Of course he does. Um, I think the opening sequence is probably easier to talk about as a whole, instead of breaking it up into to bits. Yeah. Um, basically, there's a cross-cutting between two flashbacks here, if we think of the Batman on the motorcycle being on the present day. Yeah. Right? Then what we're reading is an extended flashback, which contains flashbacks. The flashback within a flashback is of Bruce as a young child, falling down the hole in the Garden of Wayne Manor and being scared of the bats, and inadvertently, discovering what will become the Batcave. And it's almost a remake of what happened in Year One and Dark Knight Returns. Yeah. And I kind of wish he'd stayed away from any of that imagery. But I suppose when retelling the origin writers just borrow from past iterations and at the moment 
this has become a seminal piece of bat history. Mm. But he cross-cuts this between the more modern flashback of the Red Hood shooting Bruce through the portrait of his parents, which is really cold. And it's not baffling. No. The comic opens picking up exactly where last time left off, which is good. But then we see Bruce smashing open the gates of Wayne Manor, and then we cut back to him being beaten up, and then smashing open Wayne Manor. That's actually a really cool page layout, if yeah. you look at the movement. He takes a rock. Yes, he lifts it up. And then... The mace comes down. Yeah, so the rock and the mace are the same thing. Yes. And him being hit is him hitting the... It's him yeah. hitting the padlock yeah. to I break open the game. And the chain snapping is Bruce snapping. It's Bruce's blood yeah. going everywhere. It's No, it's fantastically laid out. Um, it's visually... The storytelling is just stunning mm. in this comic. And it is one of those things that it makes you look at it closely. Yeah. Because Capullo is contributing just as much to this as Snyder is. He's not an artist. They are both storytellers. Yeah. They're essentially the, the same thing. It is a prime example of the collaboration between writer and artist. Yeah. To the point where it's actually quite difficult to tell where one is ending and one's beginning. Yeah. How much of this was in Snyder's plot mm. and how much of it has Capullo contributed and Snyder's gone, that's brilliant. Yeah. And he's rewritten what he was doing. It is a real benefit that the best chums now. Yeah, they hate each other when they started yeah. working, didn't they? Counter Fatman on Batman. Have you listened to that? I have not. It's brilliant. Capullo was talking about that Snyder was this gunko kid and he couldn't stand that Capullo would change stuff in the script if he thought it looked better visually to do it that way. Mm. And over time, they've actually become best friends, haven't they? They have, yeah. And that's really cool. Yeah. And that's really sweet. It shows for the work as well. Yeah. It's just the, the storytelling in it, visually and the plotting is fantastic and the Red Hood has that great monologue about nothing doesn't he yeah the fear of nothing and how random events can change lives that's a fantastic monologue I think it's brilliant Mm. it's all it's all fantastic it's all really good and Bruce's escape and his cut between his father pulling him out of the hole that we saw him fall into in the last issue and Bruce finding sanctuary in the manor is also cross-cut between the Red Hood scenes. So, again, what Snyder is doing is giving flash-forwards in a flashback where there are further flashbacks. Yeah. And it is never confusing, Mm. is it? It's always very clear what period of time you're reading and when it takes place and how it affects the overall narrative. It's done in such a way as well where even though we know this is six years ago, we're reading this as though it's the present day. Yeah. It feels like it. Yeah, you're reading... This this puts lie to the claim that prequels can't be any good, which is something I believe. (laughs) Yeah. But you're watching this and you think Bruce is going to die here, don't you? Yeah. The amount that he's beaten up and the fact that he gets shot and... You forget that, well, he can't die because I've read Batman yeah, stories yeah. that take place after this. So good is the writing mm. that you actually think there's a real possibility he's going to die. And, yeah. you know, he doesn't because he's, he's Bruce Wayne and he becomes Batman. This beginning bit as well is really clever in the sense that to fight his war, he removes himself from being Bruce Wayne and sets up this bat nest on, on a crime alley. Yeah. And so it has to be burned down and 
forcefully taken from him that he returns to the manor and finds himself which gives him something to fight with very good yeah. yeah I like that that's great I think this is great I think this is fantastic this shows what you can do with comics as a medium this wouldn't work as a film no. shot this way it would just be confusing as hell mm. the constant cutting would be jarring I, I, don't, I doubt it would even work in a novel I don't think you could pull this off in a, in a book a yeah. proper book I don't think you could do it it would have to be simplised yeah but you'd have to put now ten years ago now five minutes ago you'd have to do it like yeah, that or it would be d- d- done chronologically and that wouldn't be as effective the only way you can uh, translate this into any other media is to chronologically do it yeah you, to, to make this into a DC animated movie you would have to gut the story mm. and make it more linear yeah which is you you know yeah. you, you've criticised me for before <laughs> but I love this mm. because I don't this is non-linear storytelling done well yeah it's non-linear flashbacks to a linear story the progressing normally that work mm. that give them the current moments context yeah and it's all credit to Capullo and Snyder that this works as well as it does I think it's it's absolutely fantastic uh, I love that the throwaway line in an earlier issue about Philip having a plate in his head yeah is exploited by the Riddler which I thought was very nice mm-hmm. no big deal was made about it. he just casually mentions it to Bruce doesn't he yeah. plate in my head for some reason and it felt organic and natural it didn't feel like that's gonna come in useful later yeah it was his lecture so yeah he got it because well, he didn't want to do yeah. what he had to do so it was good yeah I thought that was really nice piece of foreshadowing and paying off mm. that it was one line nothing was made of it but the Riddler knows about it yeah that was great absolutely brilliant and that two page splash in fact this entire scene is really cool seeing the manor room transformed into a into cave into the cave yeah because again he dropped the ball down the cave yeah when he was playing years earlier years ago and you're like okay mm. and there's another one here that his dad had yeah. When he talked about it, and it pairs out. This is the same one. Yeah, that's, that's what the, I mean. The photo he took on accident... Mm. Is, is the one that's in the, the yeah. thing. Is the one that gave him purpose. Is the one that's in the... What do they call them? The chest. That's on That he opens, yeah. It's great, isn't it? Mm. It's so well constructed. Snyder brings in a lot of elements into play that he's set up in the earlier issues as he brings the first act to its conclusion it's glorious stuff it actually made me flick back an awful lot yeah to earlier issues as I was reading to see how the various plot pads, threads sorry were being set up and mm. and brought together well, well structured well drawn everything a good comic should be yeah there's the bit that still always gives me chills where Alfred apologises for being too rusty hmm it's just one simple line but it's just so touching yeah, after he's, after he's patched him up from two bullet holes. Yeah, but the fact that he's done such a bad job of it, and you can see the stitches hanging out and everything. He fixes him, though. It's such a nice little moment. Alfred and Bruce are brilliant in this. Mm. I think Alfred and, and Bruce are great in it. the cool little imagery of him with the dressing gown that looks like his cape. Yeah. I hadn't noticed that either, but yeah, that's actually really good. With the bat on the head. Mm. I shall become a bat. I can't help but think that'll become a little bit more dated as time goes on than the bat just crashing through the window. Yeah. 3D hol- holography. Uh, you know, it works here. Yeah. And it works splendid. 
Splendidly. I think is the word we were looking for. Mm. Issue 24 cover. Two gloved hands with bat scallops on the forehands hold a familiar looking cowl. Again, taken on its own, it's not very interesting, but taken part of the four, they all form part of an image of Batman readying his equipment and donning the suit. As Michael pointed out, it's very clever. He's creating the batarangs, he's putting the gauntlets on, he's donning the cowl. He's getting ready for this issue. Yeah. As, as I said to you when they were coming out I just kept thinking boring boring yeah. but when you put them all together that's actually pretty damn good isn't it? it's one of those things where you need a lot of patience to be able to fully appreciate comics yeah it is one of them reading it as a as a sequential thing coming out every month it's periodical enjoyable yeah but no no that, that, it makes you want the next issue yeah but reading it then as a complete entity at the end of it, you're getting a different experience reading it. You can fully appreciate it more than you could. Hopefully. Yeah, it's like it's like it's when we did Death of the Family. Yeah, it's a completely different reading experience reading it all as one, mm. rather than reading it as a monthly issue. Both work, but this is just this is better. Yeah, reading it like this. Uh, the triple sized issue 24 yeah, is. Yeah, cost a whopping $7. It did, yeah. Is titled Dark City Part 1, despite arguably being Part 4 of Secret Scissor. One night in Gotham City, a small group of Red Hoods steal barrels of pressurised gas through a skylight. One of the Hoods is scared of a bat that's been sighted around the city, but another says he's not real, made up by the cops or the Falcones. He knows this because he's native, native to Gotham, and, all, and something is always made up to scare the criminals. But what he doesn't know, however, until it's too late, that the other hoods have been tied to a sign to form a shape. A dark, cloaked and horned figure sits above him and beckons him over to be the head on his bat. The following day, Red Hood 1 is stood on a barge reading a newspaper article on a Bat-Man. He talks about the kind of fascinating things he reads about in newspapers, like all the fuss about rebuilding the seaport. They tried a few years back, he said, but failed. Now the city is once again trying to rebuild because of some, something called liquid courage, a new kind of silica-based concrete. Inject carbon dioxide into the silica and it hardens 28 times faster and twice as stronger as conventional concrete. He tells this to a red hood who has his mouth full of the stuff, an anchor tied around his neck and other hoods tied around his feet. Red Hood 1 casually kicks the anchor into the ocean and dares the Batman to try rebuilding the scissor. Bruce and Alfred look over a map that shows where all the Red Hood's crimes have happened. The map doesn't show a pattern, and the crimes are all far too random. To see a pattern, Bruce must go higher. He pays Phil a visit in his Wayne Enterprises penthouse, who is amazed to see him alive. Bruce tells Phil that he needs some way of following a pattern, tags on stolen guns, anything. Phil says he is nothing, and that a group of Red Hoods found Phil and branded him as one of their own. He unbuttons his shirt and shows Bruce the number scarred onto his chest. Bruce apologises in shock and asks if he can at least have access into the system, which Phil happily gives him. He asks if, this, if Phil will join them in the manor for safety, but Phil refuses. It's too late for him now. Bruce sits in the back cave as Alfred climbs down the ladder. Bruce speaks of digging through the cave until he can make an entrance in the study. 
He explains to Alfred that the Red Hoods have raided almost every Wayne Depot in the city, but have completely avoided one particular facility that's full of the material the gang would ever want. Alfred realises the Hoods' plan, but states that the facility is heavily guarded. Bruce says that Batman can't handle this attack, but he knows someone who can. At the GCPD, Commissioner Loeb is overlooking the Bat Sightings investigation when an officer interrupts him to tell him that someone's on the news claiming to have new information on the Red Hood gang. That someone is Bruce Wayne. Bored of rich folk craving the spotlight, Loeb sends Officer Gordon to watch. Bruce stands in front of said facility. In front of him is a large group of reporters with Gordon and a few other officers watching from a short distance away. Bruce speaks to the crowd. What do you love about this city, he asks. It's an awful place to live, and the only people who know why they love it are themselves. But Bruce explains why he loves it. It's a city that allows people to be what they want to be. It's a city that stirs you down and challenges you, but when you try, when you walk through all the fire, then you will emerge, change, burn down to who you really are, the hero. And that's why Bruce came back. Because things have changed around Gotham. Instead of defiance, all Bruce can see is fear. Fear of the Red Hood gang, what they have done and what they can do. Bruce is here, right now, standing outside of Ace Chemical, because the Hoods are inside, working on a toxic chemical poison that they plan on exploding around several points in the city tonight. The Hoods don't seem to like this revelation, and fire miniature rockets at Bruce. In the heat of the moment, Alfred, working in the back of a truck just outside the plant, opens the gates for Bruce remotely, who rushes into the plant. Bruce watches over the operation, shocked that it's worse than he thought, until Red Hood 1 congratulates Bruce on working this all out by himself. But it's too late now. The chemical is currently being loaded into trucks and tomorrow the sun will rise on a whole new Gotham. Bruce says he doesn't know what he's talking about. He might say he represents a randomness, but his message is meaningless. He's just an evil man pretending to have a cause. Hood One decides it's his time to pull the trigger and bring everything full circle. But, before he can, all power shuts down. Using this to their advantage, the police storm in as a Red Hood helicopter pulls back to witness full-power blackout across the city in the shape of a giant bat. Red Hood 1 switches to night vision goggles and spots Wayne dazed and confused in front of him. A Hood approaches him but is whisked away by a cloaked figure. The figure returns and rescues Bruce Wayne from the Hoods before the lights switch back on. Blinded, Red Hood 1 runs away and cowers behind a wall watching the Batman attack his men as Vision returns. Batman takes the group down, but another group approach from downstairs. Alfred says that trucks are being readied, and that he might not have control over the facility's doors in time. Batman gets back to work, attaching a grappling hook to a Hood's belt, riding him down the stairs over the attacking Hoods, and sets him back upstairs, stripping the Hoods over, who he then takes out from behind. Having lost connection, Batman doesn't hear Alfred warn him of Red Hood 1 and his high-caliber pistol. A Hood shoots his helmet, to which he returns fire. Batman recognizes the Hood's number and rushes to his, his aid. The police finally break in, and the plant explodes as Batman crouches over Phil's dead body. The trucks try to escape, but the doors won't open. Alfred's handiwork. Gordon and the police stand over the Batman who tells them to stand back. Refusing to, Batman shoots Gordon with an inflatable cushion from his flare gun, which knocks him back, giving Batman enough time to escape and catch up to Red Hood 1 as the plant collapses around them. 
Red Hood's escape chopper opens fire on Batman, who carries on running, grappling the Red Hood's feet as the floor crumbles below them. The two fall down and land on the catwalk below. Batman tries to recover, but is hit in the back with a pole. Red Hood tries to stamp, ba- stamp on Batman's face, but he grabs Red Hood's foot at both ends and twists. Red Hood tries to talk Batman out of trying, to which Batman headbutts a dent into the Hood's helmet. A vat below explodes, and its lid flies up, tearing through the catwalk between them. Slipping down the catwalk, Red Hood recognises Batman as his own vigilante, and refuses to grab onto Batman's outstretched arm. This is only just the beginning, he says, before falling into the vat below. Later, walks down into the Batcave to find Bruce sitting at the computer. Bruce thanks Alfred for making sure that Bruce Wayne was still on the catwalk when Batman appeared, making sure that their separation between Batman and Bruce Wayne is cemented into the foundation of the Batman mythos. Alfred also says that he believed the police have identified Red Hood 1, but Bruce shoots him down. No body was recovered from Ace, but deep members of the Red Hood gang did have suspicions as to who number one was, Liam DeStyle. DeStyle's body was discovered stuffed into a barrel of lye outside the amusement park, which means the identity of Red Hood 1 is still unknown. Either that, or DeStyle started the gang was replaced by the man Batman fought at the plant. Alfred apologises for the fight they had days earlier, and says that maybe Batman can help transform the city into a better city. As the two reconcile, Edward Nigma appears on every screen in the city. Calling himself the Riddler, he has taken it upon himself to make the city smarter, and begins with a riddle. The riddle of the two sisters, who each, <coughs> who each give birth to each other. One sister says, I am the day, and the other sister says, I am the night. With an explosion in the centre of the city, all of Gotham's power shuts down, and the Riddler brings on the Dark Knight. You included the backup story there. The backup story in this was important. It is, it's very important to the story, but it's not by Capullo and... We'll, we'll talk about the, the other backups. Yeah, we'll do that in a minute. Uh, whoever designed the typeface of the billboard welcoming people to Gotham did a god-awful job. Did they? Yeah, the actual layout of that is terrible. Oh, yeah. And it's only like that so that Batman can strap all the Red Hood gang to it to make the sign say, Welcome it's to Bat Country. Yeah. That's the only reason it's laid out as badly as it is. Yeah. I'll give him a pass for it, though, because it's, it's very funny. I do like a Batman who has a flow for the dramatic. Yeah. Taking the time to not only pin them to the <clears throat> billboard, but in the shape of a bat. It's pretty damn cool. Mm. Especially his line about still needing a head when he grabs the last guy. I like Batman with a grim sense of humour. Yeah. I love that. They still need a head. <laughs> yeah. the, Come here, you. The entire opening to this is so good. It's Even fantastic. The colouring... Like, Batman contrasted against a yellow night sky. Yeah. But it looks... But it works. Yeah. It's not one of those times when we're going, that sky is awful and garish and I hate it. Yeah. It actually works incredibly well. Particularly impressive, Batman looks very Todd McFarlane, Mm. which is fitting, I suppose, Yeah, for Greg Capullo. The art style for Batman in this issue, though, is completely different to the art style of Batman in the other issues. Mm. He looks completely... He looks... Not cartoony, 
but more Bob Kane. It's a homage to Detective Comics 27. Which, the same as Splash page, yeah. Bob Kane was here. Yeah, and uh, the, that entire Splash page is the cover to 27, including Batman wearing his purple gloves. Yeah, which are a neat touch. Yeah, and having the guy by the neck as yeah. he swings away with him. It's, it's, that double-page splash is brilliant. Mm. If Greg Capello had been at uh, Thought Bubble, that's what we would have had him sign, that page. Yeah. Forget the cover. We'd have had him sign that page on the yellow because mm. it is absolutely stunning. Brilliant. I wonder how much that costs you. That piece of original art. Don't know. Be a lot of money, wouldn't it? Red Hood One has some end game in mind. Yeah. The next Batman arc is called Endgame. That coincidence? Yeah. Nope. Not considering I who Red Hood not. One is. Yeah. Given. Uh, I really like the scene where. Redford one's talking about the new concrete how he's just reading the newspaper and casually kicks the anchor down and kills all the Redford's. Well, I love it. The, the most important question to me personally being how does this stuff taste? Yeah. And stuff's in his mouth. It's very chilling similar to another character who's funny and chilling. Yes. I wonder who we could be talking about. Yeah. Who, who is canonically the Red Hood. Canon... Can, yeah, that word. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love the line, as long as you don't install a fire pole, sir, Alfred says, and he sends the rope ladder to the back cave. I'll manage. Mm. Lovely. Go yeah. on, put a fireman's pole in, Bruce. You know you <laughs> want to. The, the Batmobile there as well, but under, under covers. Yeah, they've not actually finished the Batmobile yet. I did think we would get a Batman origin that didn't have TV talking heads. Yeah. But, you know, thankfully they're not in it for long. And they, they serve the purpose of getting plot exposition out there, don't they? Yeah. So they, they do what they're supposed to do. Bruce's speech is eloquent and very well written, but it's the subtleties that sell it. All throughout Bruce being interrogated by the Red Hood, he's smiling. Bruce finally has a plan of attack. He knows what he's doing instead of making it up as he goes. And for the first time, we start seeing the Batman who likes to be at least two steps ahead of everyone else, and it's been built up on from earlier scenes, but not in a way that makes Bruce seem incompetent before he becomes Batman. Mm. Rather, he's very much a man searching for his path, and then here he finally finds it. And the first proper appearance of Batman is wonderful. Yeah. Isn't it? It evokes the 1989 film taking place in Ace Chemicals, but here we have a Batman who can be athletic instead of just posing. He's mm. not restricted like Michael Keaton was by a costume that he can't move it. Yeah, the Ace Chemical reveal as well was a pretty cool reveal. Yeah, it was all great. It was it was all absolutely fantastic. I love Bruce in this. Mm. It's it's all really really good. This I especially like Batman taunting his enemy. Yeah, with um, full of confidence and brimming with vinegar I loved him attaching the grapple to one of the hoods this was my favourite movie he attaches the grapple to one of the hoods his belt yeah. then fires the grapple so it pulls the guy back and then Batman rides him down punching out all of the other Red Hood gang but then lets him go at the bottom and then lets him all. go I mean, yeah, and he knocks them all over. Yeah. Like, essentially, he's playing um, bowls with them. Yeah. He's playing bowling with them. I, he's really cool. Yeah. That I really like earlier, where they knock the power out. Um, In the shape of a bat. That splash page was the moment that made me go, 
wow. Well, that one there. Yeah, because Capullo's artwork was always good, but the fact that he has painstakingly detailed every single tiny car in every street in the city is so cool. Yeah, you got to wonder how long that took him. And you look at the bat as well, and it's not just a shape of a bat, you can see the building sticking out. Yeah, it is brilliant. Yeah. It is a fantastic splash of, uh, of how he's demonstrated the bat. And even the map as well, does... Is he going off something? Does is does he have a city he's basing on, or does he just have a city in his head? Do you think he's done a three D model on his computer of Gotham, and that's what he uses in his head when he's plotting Batman's action scene? It could be, because that's not that difficult to do now on a computer, is it? No, three D map a, a fictional city. But how does he have the same Gotham? Is well, if he's got the three D map, he can just use yeah, the same yeah, image. Yeah. The same mapping, but it is. I'm not taking away from his artwork though, which All is. Yeah, fantastic. Also, those pages were um, the, the one earlier where he's not got his helmet on. Yeah, if you look at him, that is that is the Joker. You think? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's his nose and his eyes. Is that him reflected there? Yeah, it is, isn't it? Looks like Doctor Bong from okay. Howard the Duck. <laughs> I don't think it, that's intentional. To be honest with you, uh, the issue culminates. In a meeting with Gordon on a gantry and the Red Hood falling into a vat of chemicals, which is exactly like the 1989 movie. Yeah. Only faster, more intense, with better acting and grander action sequences. It's like Snyder's wanted to rewrite that scene for years and make it better, which mm. he does. Yeah. This is all over the 89 film. Yeah. In terms of how fluid the action is and how fast-paced it is. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. The entire issue from... Bruce Wayne being outside of Ace Chemical though is just down, downright glorious. Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? And the final bit where Bruce Wayne's the Batman just had enough of Red Hood one. From then on, it's just so brutal running through the helicopter gunfire and headbutting a dent into his helmet, even twisting his ankle, which is downright cringing. Yeah, it's but he still tries to save him. Yeah. When he falls into the... Uh, yeah, he breaks his foot, doesn't he? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He um, still tries to save him, but when the, the Joker... When Red Hood <laughs> 1 falls into the vat, he's just smiling at it. How he says, uh, it's just the beginning. Yes. And it, the actual issue ends with him falling into the, the chemical vat. Yeah. The extra stuff was the backup strip. They have done this before in uh, Night of Owls. How... So this backup strip would have to be in the tread. Yeah, the are. Right. Because uh, without this backup strip, you don't know that the Riddler's Black the City out in part two, do you? It's not a backup strip per se. No, this is actually part of the story. They're, they're using the space of the backup strip to tell a continuation of the issue, which yeah. they've done before in Night of Owls. Yeah, and the other backup strips in these issues, the first, Where the Hell Did You Learn to Drive?, shows a young Bruce Wayne partaking in a street crime with a criminal wheelman. It's a nifty little story. Yeah, they are. You know, it's fine as a one-off like that, but not something I want to see on a regular basis. If you cover everything Bruce did in his training, you remove an element of mystery. Yeah. The second, that one time, is Bruce learning to be an escape artist. The third, the pit, is what it says it is. Bruce learns to fight in a pit, which is very like Dark Knight Rises. Mm. Only better. Um, and as Michael mentioned, the fourth one's not a flashback. It's actually a really rather important part of the story. The and, other, yeah. the other backups are all mentioned, though. Phil mentions that Bruce Wayne was spotted 
in a fight club yeah. death ring and he says he didn't kill anyone. Yeah. Uh, he says he once saw the Sphinx one time to Edward Nigma. Yeah, and we see that. And they all play into it and they're all little cool lessons that Bruce Wayne has learned. But then if you remember that Bruce Wayne has learned lessons throughout his training, then his whole learning a lesson in the grand scheme of things doesn't seem that kind of a big deal. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I don't mind these own little vignettes every now and again where you learn what Bruce learned. But if you do everything, yeah. it suddenly starts stretching credibility a bit. Mm. I leave some of it as a bit of a mystery. Absolutely brilliant. Absolutely wonderful stuff. Snyder Capello and Enka Danny Miki are creating a great Batman run. Arguably a seminal run that will be held up with other classics of Bat history in years to come. There's a few nods to the past here. The original Detective comic stories, Year One, Killing Joke, and, oddly, the 1989 movie. But this stands alone as an all-new retelling of Batman's first year. For the first time, the new 52 embraces the Batman Begins origins and jettisons its sentimental attachment to the past. Thankfully, it does it exceptionally well. There's no retreads of the death of the Waynes, no pearls swimming in blood, no graveside vow. Even the I will become a bat scene is shiny and new. And you know what? It works. Mm. It's intelligently plotted, magnificently drawn, and just goddamn good comics. All of Zero Year's great, but I'd say the first part... The first act. ...is pretty damn near close to being perfect, just because issue 24 is fantastic. It is pretty damn good, isn't it? It is, yeah. It is great. Next time on our all-new episode, Zero Year Act 2. Which is Dark Sitter. Which is Dark Sitter. Mm-hmm. Job's good. All right, well, that's it, isn't it? Yes. We've no... I've just told them what we're doing next week. Yeah. All right, see you next time. Bye-bye. See you. Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show is not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them, and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. <laughs>